Read along with me, if you would, please. When you go out to battle against your enemies and you see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you who brought you up from the land of Egypt. So it shall be when you are on the verge of battle that the priest shall approach and speak to the people and shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are on the verge of the battle with your enemies, of battle with your enemies. Do not let your heart faint. Do not be afraid. Do not tremble or be terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. Then the officer shall speak to the people saying, What man is there who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him go and return to his house lest he die in battle and another man dedicate it. And what man is there who has planted a vineyard and has not eaten of it? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in battle and another man eat of it. And what man is there who has betrothed to a woman and has not married her? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in battle and another man marry her. The officer shall speak further to the people and say, What man is there who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go and return to his house, lest... The heart of his brethren faint like his heart. And so it shall be when the officers have finished speaking to the people that they shall make captains of the armies and lead the people to lead the people. And when you go near a city to fight against it, then proclaim an offer of peace to it. And it shall be if they will accept your offer of peace and open to you, then all the people who are found in it shall be placed under tribute to you and serve you. Now, if the city will not make peace with you, but makes war against it, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God delivers it into your hand, you shall strike every male in it with the edge of the sword. But the women, the little ones, the livestock and all that is in the city, all the spoil. You shall plunder for yourself. You shall eat the enemy's plunder, which the Lord your God gives you. Thus you shall do to all the cities which are very far from you, which are not of the cities of these nations. But of the cities of these peoples, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive, but you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite, just as the Lord your God commanded you, lest they teach you to do, to do, so teach you to do according to all their abominations which they have done for their gods, And you sin against the Lord your God. When you besiege a city for a long time whilst making war against it to take it, you shall not destroy the trees by wielding an axe against them if you can eat of them. Do not cut them down to use at the siege, for the trees of the field is man's food. Only the trees which you know are not trees for food you may destroy and cut down to build siege works against the city that makes war with you until it is subdued. Pray with me, would you please? Lord, I thank you for the blessing of this time. Redeem every second of it, Lord. Have your way as we go now into a time of teaching, Lord. I pray that we would be open to receive everything you have to say. God, I pray you would come upon me. First, immerse me in you, Lord, that I would disappear and you would appear. And then come upon me in such a way, Lord, that you would do through me what I cannot humanly do. Perform the ministry that is necessary to every one of us. Bespoke to our needs. Bespoke to who we are. Speak fluent us, each of us, individually, where we need to hear. And corporately as a family. 
I pray, Lord, that your word would burst open and come alive for us, that we would get it. We would get it more than we've ever gotten it. And Lord, in that I pray today, Lord, that you would really get to the need in our life and minister right there. I pray we would have so much fun in your word. And I thank you for the blessing of this time, Lord. I just pray that you would save the lost, encourage the downtrodden, strengthen the weak, equip the servant, challenge the unruly, do all that you intend your word to do now. Have your way as we commit every second of this to you. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Always search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be the final say. So here we are in scripture. We are now at a place where the battle is inevitable. And this battle that is inevitable is even in their location. They're across the Jordan, staring at the daunting walls of Jericho that are several stories high and, to be honest, seven stories thick. I mean, it seems as impervious as any place ever could be. And we're staring at this with an army of people that look like giants and we look like grasshoppers in their stead. And we're comparing these things. And God says, look, whether you know it or not, the battle's inevitable. That's, you can't avoid the battles. There are earmarked battles for every one of us. The issue is not whether we're going to fight battles. The question is whether we'd like to be victorious in them. Now, obviously, ideologically, we'd say, of course, why would I ever want to lose a battle? The question is, how far are we willing to go to win? Now, now please understand, when God starts talking about it, might I say there's a battle, there's a fight and a war. A battle is an event. For instance, the Battle of Waterloo. It was an event. A fight, by the way, is usually the cause, or if you will, the reason for that engagement. Who am I fighting against? What am I fighting with? For instance, it tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, to fight the good fight of faith. There's a fight. And that causes that we never lose trust. Faith is not a fancy word. Pisyuchol simply means trust. God's like, there will always be a battle over that trust. Are you willing to win that battle? Paul would say, by the way, it's so important that by the end of Paul's life, as he's just about to die, 67 AD, there in the Mamertine prison, writes his last letter, 2 Timothy, and he says there, I've fought the good fight. I've won the race. I've really won this. He says, I've kept the faith. And there now awaits me a crown of life that the Lord Jesus, the righteous one, has ordained for me, but not only me, but all who have loved his appearing. God knows that there are these fights to be won. There's the good news is that the Lord is never going to lead us into a fight to lose. Well, that's, of course, as long as we let him fight it. Now, it tells us, by the way, for what it's worth, Paul would make a, he'll use several references to it. For instance, 1 Corinthians 9, 26, where he says, well, in essence, we fight not, without, we fight not with uncertainty. We buffet ourselves. And the idea of it is we make every punch count. There's the idea. He's not just swinging indiscriminately. And we can watch that. It's like sort of quoting a verse that's irrelevant, but just assuming every demon's going to flee or something because you're, you're running around going, Jesus wept, Jesus wept, Jesus wept. There's kind of the idea. It tells us for what it's worth. In James chapter 4, verse 1, he tells us where do fights come from? Well, they come from actually, to be honest, desires that war within your soul. There were going to be several battles. And can I say there's sort of three basic fronts you're going to face? And again, don't just believe me. 
Search the scriptures. But let me give you some of that, for instance. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 17, he tells us that there is a war between your flesh and the Spirit of God. Now, it's important to note, when we talk about the flesh, might I just make it as simple as I can? The flesh nature is just simply me first. That's it. It's all about me. I've got to put me first. I'm in the front of the queue. That's the battle against the Spirit of God that will put the Lord first and you at the back of the queue. You know, that battle will be fought. And the good news is he'll tell us the one that wins is just the one you feed. It tells us, by the way, that there is a battle against the world and its system. First John makes that clear. First John chapter five, verse four tells us, and this is the victory that has overcome the world. So we even know how that is. And he says, our faith. But he'll tell us also in chapter five of first John that the whole world is under the sway or influence of the wicked one. So the systems of the world that trust Everything but God, usually trust yourself, you've got to believe in your heart, that kind of thing. The penchant of Disney becomes, in essence, the banner of the world. Believe in yourself, trust your heart. And he says the victory will be trusting God. He'll also tell us that we battle against principalities, powers, mights, and dominions. It's important to note that will be in the book of Ephesians, chapter 5. I'm sorry, chapter 6, when he tells us to put on the full armor of God that we could take our stand against those things because our, wrestle, our, our, our battle is not against carnal things but against spiritual things in heavenly places. And that's the key. And might I say, Bible students, do your homework. Look and just do this. Take the book of Ephesians and mark everything that you see about the heavenly places because it's the final one of them. And he's given us several prior to that point where it tells us, for instance, you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Okay, so the battle in the heavenly places is one where I have every spiritual blessing. And then it tells us that he raised Jesus, father, the Father raised Jesus from the dead and seated him above all principality, power, might, dominion, and anything that could be named. In the heavenly places, Jesus is enthroned above all of those things. And then it tells us, I was raised in Christ the moment I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior and seated, not with, but in Jesus. Well, that's a great place to be. Above every principality, power, might, dominion, in Jesus, in the heavenly places. And he says, there's a battle there. There's a battle against those principalities, powers, mights, and dominions, which, might I remind you, are underneath Jesus, and you're seated in him. The issue is staying in him. Not getting off the, uh, the, the lap, or if you will, the arms of God to try to go and try to make this matter yourself. So there's a battle against the flesh. There's a battle against the world. The flesh, the victory will be by the Spirit of God. The battle of the world will be our faith. And then the battle against the principalities, powers, mights, and dominions, well, it's all going to be about Jesus. It tells us, as a matter of fact, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 14, that I write this to you, young men, because you are strong and because you have overcome the wicked one. Overcome. And the word of God lives in you. When I say that you want victory over the enemy, Get in the word of God, because it is the sword of God's spirit. With that said, might I say again, there are battles to be fought. We're standing, we're staring at this. And Moses is well aware of the fact he can't even go into the promised land. But he's looking at the people now. And as he's looking at the people, he sees fear. It was the same fear 38 years ago that led them to go another 38 years in the wilderness until that generation died off, except the two faithful spies Caleb and Joshua. I'm going to say again, listen, there's a battle. 
There's a fight and there's a war. The battle, it's an event. The fight is the cause and the war is the entirety of it. And here's the good news. We've already, if you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've already won the war. So put it this way. If you ever get a chance, guys, ladies, I'm not trying to make this sort of a weird thing, but guys, if you ever get a chance to watch a movie, and I'm not endorsing movies, but if you get a chance, if you're the kind that that's not against your conviction, to watch one with David Birch, I highly recommend it. David gets just absorbed in the theatricity. I mean, he just, he just verbally responds to everything. Now, I grew up in the south side of Chicago, so... I used to watch movies solely because of the audience. And where I came from, it was like everyone made comment. Oh, don't you? Oh, like you're going to walk around in there in heels. I mean, it's like in every, the whole thing was commentary. And it made the movie. It didn't matter what movie you were watching because you really weren't going to watch it much anyways. But if you watch a movie with David, you watch him go, oh, oh, oh no, don't. Oh, and I love that about David. Forgive me for David for embarrassing you on China. You know. I mean, we won't say who it is. Anyways, just anyways. But what if you're watching like one of those series? For instance, you're watching a series of a, of a sleuth and he's supposed to be brilliant and he can, he's observing things and he can put all these things together. And, and we have, you know, we have these discs, right? Because my children are really into Sherlock, for instance. And not again, I'm not endorsing it. That's just sort of something there into. And, and we have, you know, series is one, two, and three, I think is what it is. And we're watching, I think it's the second series. And in the second series, you know, you're watching and, and there's this point where you watch them fall off of a building and you're like, oh, no. And then it's like bloody and it's awful. and It's terrible. And again, I'm not endorsing it. I'm just trying to make clear. But there's a point where you go, oh, no. And then you go, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's series three. And you can't have a guy called Sherlock die in series two and still have a series called Sherlock in series three. In other words, what you already know is he's got to be still there somewhere in it. So no matter how drawn in it you are, you kind of know, whoa, this looks like a terrible setback, death, blood, and all that. Yeah, that kind of makes it rough to think, but somehow they're going to work this out for Series 3. And the reason I say that is you could be caught in battles where you think, oh, man, I feel like I'm losing so terribly, and I feel like the, 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 the arrows are coming, and I feel like I'm going down. But wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I saw the end of the book, and at the end of the book, I already win. And I know I win. So no matter how bad the battle is, and no matter how heavy it is upon me, I already know there's another series, and there's a new heaven, and a new earth, and I'm already there. So I know I can't go down here in this. I'm staying with them, and my name is already written in the book of life. This thing's already a done deal. This might be a rough chapter. This might be a season of challenge, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to... Hey, I may have a problem in the battle, but if I follow Jesus, I won't even have that. And that's what we're going to see here. Is as we kind of get ready for that battle. And I don't know whether, look at, either you're in a battle, or there are going to be ones for ground to be gained in the future, or there's victory that you've looked back and you, you see Jesus. Or you're going to have to retake it. So you might want to just win. Now, now, now follow me in this. Because what he starts doing here, let me just kind of put this in this sort of perspective. As we kind of, kind of dig through. Now there's only, you know, 20 verses. So we're not that, you know, we don't have to rush through this, which is good. But let me see this. As we kind of dig into it, verse 1 will be sort of our overview. And then from our verses 2 through 9 now, we're going to have sort of two approaches as we prepare for these battles. In verses 2 through 4, the priest is going to step up first. And it's really important to recognize that this battle is not going to be something that's simply military. First and foremost, this is a spiritual issue. Then after that will come 
the officers who are then going to ultimately appoint leaders, captains over the army. But before he does that, well, we really need to prune out some things, primarily those that are going to be heavily distracted and those that are given to doubt. Because there are going to be no benefit at that point. So, so, so follow me on this as we start to dig into it. Look at it. Verse 1. Did you notice, by the way, the first word is not if? Doesn't that just bring you great comfort? It doesn't just say, well, maybe if you're one of those kind of people where battles beset you. There's a when. And it's kind of non-negotiable. There's a point. Here's the good news. Nothing that you gain will not, will not be without a battle. But the most important thing you could gain has been fought on your behalf. When Jesus went to the cross to pay for your sins and mine, he made that choice because we were already defeated. It was the one thing that put defeat in every other area. But my victorious king came and he took the best the devil had to offer. And he took it to the grave. And he came out again to say, is that all you got? But when you go to battle against your enemies... It's important to note that the enemies that we're facing here are going to be God's enemies. God has already made it clear they've made a declaration of war against him. I think it's interesting because in Psalm 139, it's verses we might read past because the whole thing is almost like a massage until we get to a couple verses right towards the end. It's like, you know, my sitting up and my, you know, my rising up and my lying down and my thoughts from afar. You, I mean, you knit me together and, you know, no matter where I go, oh, there you're going to be. I mean, I could try to run to hell and you're going to find me there. I mean, darkness isn't darkness around you. And I get the idea of all this. And then he says, right in the, and he goes, oh, well, how I hate those who hate you. I hate them with a perfect hatred. And you go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Somewhere in it, all of a sudden, we were like being lulled and then we got run over by the lorry. Some of you are familiar with Brahms, the composer. He's the one who wrote the lullabies. So I shouldn't even start to hum that, should I? That's probably a bad idea in church. And he got tired of being the guy known for writing lullabies, so he started writing a lulling piece, and right in the middle of it all, he had this symbolist. That's the guy with the big symbols. Just go mental on the symbols. It was his way of making sure that you didn't fall asleep in his concerts. Why did I even tell you that? Because... In Psalm 139, we're being lulled like a lullaby until we get to these two verses because we're like, oh, how I hate them with a the perfect hatred. And it seems like such a, a weird thing in the midst of all of this comfort, but I get it. See, David is celebrating how intimate he is with God. And because he's so intimate with God, that which is declared war against God is declared war against him. And he is not, hear me, hear me, he is not going to love what God hates. And so he says then in 139.21, I hate them, O Lord, who hate you. Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? And then he says in verse 22, I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Matter of fact, you might find it interesting of all the words you may expect to find in the book of Psalms. The word enemy or enemies is found at least 106 times. It's kind of important. Because when you go to battle against your enemies, because your enemies are my enemies, 
God speaking. I'll take care of it. But when it is the case, I already know you. And notice he says, and you see horses and chariots and people. More numerous than you. Don't be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, now please understand, when conflict hits a child, if they're in a healthy family, traditionally, the first thing they do is look for dad. They just want to make sure things are safe. And as long as dad's cool, they're cool. We surmise the face of dad. Just the same way that when you're flying in one of those small Cessnas and you hit one of those you know, heat pockets and you drop the distance of the shard. I'm not bitter. You look at the pilot to see he's okay. If his knuckles are white and he's breaking into a sweat, it's a little bit more concerning. If he's like, things are good, I feel better about it. Somewhere where we recognize we don't have the strength to fight it on our own, we look at the one we think who does. But somehow as we get older, we start to think, well, we can't just look for dad every time we see a conflict. And now instead, we don't surmise the face of dad. Now we surmise the size of the challenge. So now all of a sudden I start to look at it from different fronts. How strong are they? What resources do they have? How many are they? And that's the same thing that we see here. God makes clear that he is perfectly aware that there are more horses, more chariots, and more army than they have. But that doesn't daunt him at all. God is completely unaffected by the numbers as if somehow he's playing odds. God's not running into Bedford or any of those places. So please understand something. Maybe you're in a challenge right now. Maybe there are things you are looking at. Let me ask you, how much of the time do you spend counting horses? Well, interesting, according to Scripture, by the way, let me give you a couple of ideas. For instance, in Psalm 33, verse 17, it tells us that a horse, by the way, is a vain hope for safety. This is because nobody really can be delivered by their, hear me, great strength. Psalm 147, verse 10, it tells us, by the way, that God does not delight in the strength of the horse. And a horse becomes a great example or an archetype, an icon, if you will, for strength. Now, I understand some guy comes up to you and, you know, he starts trying to pick on Dwayne and Dwayne's kind of sizing him up and the guy looks like Goliath. I mean, let's be honest. There's a part of you that starts thinking maybe we might want to talk peace before we just start going to blows here. The guy's three times my size. Is he stronger than I am? Well, it's interesting because in Psalm 20, by the way, verse 7, it says some do trust in chariots, some in horses, two of the three things we'll see here. But we will remember the name of the Lord, our God. Aren't you thankful that David didn't just size up the guy? Now, he was aware of it because he says, you come after me. And I almost kind of hear his voice crack. And he's a teen, still dealing with acne, still wondering who he's going to take to the dance. Things are rough for the guy. His clothes fit him a couple days ago. Now he's actually in style because, you know, he's showing off his ankles. That's the new thing here, right? You come down, I mean, with like sword and spear and javelin. I mean, you're just sizing up the thing for the moment, but he's like, but I come after you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, that kind of idea. I come after you in the name of God, who, by the way, whose armies you have defied. You've defied the name of my God. And at that point, people say, how could David take down Goliath with a stone? You start naming the name of God like that and you stand for him, you could have taken him down with a marshmallow. The point was, is that God knew what he was doing. And David kind of looked and went, yeah, okay, let's just be honest. You're bigger. 
Your, your stuff's bigger. But David did not go, okay, you come at me with sword, spear, javelin. I come after you with some stones. That wasn't what David said. Because he knew that his weapon was not his sling. His weapon was his God. And there's the point. And you see this throughout Scripture, whether that be Hezekiah or Jehoshaphat, and they're looking at the army of Seir, and they're seeing all of these people of the north and the Syrians gathering around, and they look and they see, and they're like, we are clear. And he's like, look at, they are more than us. They have greater military intelligence. They are stronger than us. But our eyes are on you, Lord. And that's where God says, well, then why don't you just sit still and let me get to work? Sit still and see them. Glory of God. And I love that kind of stuff. We love those verses until God tells us to sit still. Let's be honest, because at that point, things aren't so fun. Sit still. We're more like Saul in the Old Testament when the army seems to encroach, and we're going to go and take the sacrifice into our own hands because we're tired of waiting. And there's the problem. So Elisha's going, to, he's sleeping. His servant looks out and he sees themselves surrounded by Syrians, and he goes and he wakes this guy up. And he's like, Wake up, wake up. We're surrounded. And I just love the fact that, oh, I just almost picture him grumpy. He comes together, he's like, oh, God, would you just open his eyes? Good night. And he goes back to sleep. And the guy kind of opens his eyes and he looks and he sees the army of the Lord surrounding their army. And it's like, oh, pity the fool. I got nervous over that. And I just love the fact that when our eyes are on the right place, everything gets so much better. But how natural is it for you to count horses? It's like, oh man, the bills are due, and you know to the penny how much it is. You've even added them up in your head as if somehow God needed you to do that kind of accounting. And look, the Lord may say, get to work, and I get that. But you losing sleep over it isn't going to make you a better worker. And somebody kind of gets weird, and you're like, oh, what in the world do I do? How do I change this? And God says, sit still, I'm working on them. And you're like, well, can you, can I help you? Can you imagine, you know, God's like the perfect, great physician. And I, you know, I, all I've ever done with a knife is cut meat. And I'm like, oh, give me it. I'll, t- I'll get into the scalpel. God's like, whoa, 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 back down, Junior. This is my operation. Are you the kind that counts horses? Are you the kind that counts chariots? Remember, a chariot was the tank of the day. It's the resources. I look and go, but God, they have so many more resources. Well, I mean, they're counting the army. Look at they have more people. You know what you're like, but if I go out there and preach the true Jesus, I'm not talking about something convoluted that somebody else is doing. I'm talking about the biblical Jesus. Literally died, literally risen from the dead, literally the only way, truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through Him, and He proved it. God the Son, the Son of God. I love this guy. And I'm going to go out there and talk about him, but I'm afraid the whole world, and they're like, you know, so different. I'm like, stop counting the army. Yeah, but maybe I won't get the job. Well, then maybe you shouldn't have the job. But maybe she won't like me. Well, she, if she's not going to like you because you love Jesus, then don't let her like you. Where are you going? And I love the fact that we get to this point where we feel like we have to actually give God a detailed essay before we bring it to our prayers. You know what I mean? Like, God, I just want you to know I've really carefully surmised everything. God's like, but the one thing you haven't been studying is me, God speaking. And there's the problem. And so here we are. And let's be honest. We're there. And, okay, and there's, the, there's the, the ocean. Well, it's not the ocean. It's the Jordan. But it's big enough. And we're, first of all, we're thinking, how in the world are we going to get past this? I mean, we're talking about Jordan when it rushes its banks. It's going to be wider than our walls here. 
On a normal time, when we do a baptism, it's twice this width. And start looking and going, oh, yeah, it should be a piece of cake. And we're going to drag all, you know, we're going to grab Grandma Ethel over on this. Not a problem. Let's just, don't, just hold your breath. We'll float you over. I mean, what, what are we going to do here? And we're going to fight on the other side. And we're looking at this thing that goes, you know, rises up like a skyscraper on a time where there weren't any. And we're like, yeah. And this is it's staring us in the face. Because we're not looking up. We're not going to the, t- to the tabernacle that's already set up for us to inquire of the Lord. We're staring at this going, oh, man. And I'm counting horses. One, two, three. Look at how, look at how I can't even count how many horses they have. Look how strong they are. And I want to go out there and preach Jesus, but look at how strong some of the cults are. Or look at how strong, you know, atheism is. Or look at how strong witchcraft has embedded itself into our culture. And look at how strong it seems like drunkenness is and perversion and sexual immorality. Look at how strong those things are. And you just look, well, if I, if I speak about that, I might get kicked out of the country. Well, am I counting horses? Look how strong they are. Am I afraid to speak because I'm afraid someone will turn on me? Or, or, and then I look and, but look at the resources. Look at how many things they've gathered together and it's like strong that is. I mean, they've got the media and I'm going to look like an idiot, but Jesus promised us that. Paul told us that. The gospel's foolishness to those who are perishing. If they think I'm brilliant and I'm preaching the gospel, something's not right. Now, I'm not saying that you have to walk around and drool on yourself and, and all that. I'm, what I'm saying is, don't be afraid of what other people think. Be honest. And tell them the truth. Am I counting chariots and going, but look at the resources? Am I counting the army and going, but look at how many people think this? Can I really still take a stand and say that God really has never changed his mind about sexual sin? Or God has never changed his mind about what marriage is? Or God has never changed his mind about how people get saved? Or God has never changed his mind? It's like he's God's not going, oh, well, don't worry, someone will show up later and we'll give you some more options. Or can you imagine? Jesus is begging the Father, God, please don't let me go to, to the cross unless there's no other way. What Father sends his Son there if there's another way? Do you realize what kind of gospel we're proclaiming? None at all. To say he's an option. But that's not socially accurate. Well, the problem is not the Bible. The problem is the society. And we have to stop bending things for the world to like it and start telling the truth. It would be like a doctor saying, you know, everybody in the hospital is really sick. I should probably get infected with a few things just to kind of blend in a little bit. You wouldn't want that of your doctor. I wouldn't. So look at in verse 1, and the good news is we won't be developing them all like this in theory. But he says, okay, so when you see the horses, when you see the chariots, when you see the people more numerous than you, stop being afraid of them. Let me tell you why. The reason every time God tells you not to fear in Scripture, it'll be the same. God's like, because I'm with you. See, because you're comparing all of that to you. What difference could a little church the north end of Camden make in society. Can I just say, if you are family, you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, God goes with you, you will always be the majority. And you'll never have to do this alone. 
If I'm part of the family of God, then He goes with me and I'll never have to do it alone. And I think I look at this huge momentum and I see the traction that's been gained and the ground that's been gained by the enemy. But how do I compare that to my invincible, almighty, undaunted, unintimidated, unreluctant Father, the Lord, my God? That's what I'm going to compare it to? Be strong and of good courage, beloved. The Lord is with you. And it's His battle to fight. You're like, but the enemy looks so big. Well, good. Then turn to the new landlord and tell him it's for him. Jesus says when the strong man is at peace, his goods are at peace, his armory has at peace, but when stronger than him comes, he binds him, takes his goods, takes his armory. That one stronger than him isn't you, it isn't me. Because it doesn't say greater is me with he than he was in the world, but it says greater is he who is in me. The warrior is my God. So listen, that's why it's important if you're going to go to battle to get to the priest first. Now, God calls us all priests, by the way, if you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ. And if that's the case, this is your role when you see somebody in battle. By the way, can I just say this as one kind of key thought at the end of verse 1? He says, don't be afraid of the Lord God is with you. And he says, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt? Can I just say, as a child of God, not only will I never have to fight alone, not, I have to not worry about it because the guy that's sort of putting this thing against us is not God, but he's created and he is the loser. My God's the creator and he's the Lord. And he goes, just look at what we did with Egypt. And he goes, you know, Egypt was, Egypt was considered the invincible immortal. We look at it and go, that's invincible, that's immoral, it's always going to be like this. Now, maybe you don't look at a government that way, but let me ask you, is there a sin in your life that you think, I'm just going to deal with for the rest of my life? It's just going to be there? Like it's immortal until I die and I just can't wait to die and shed this? Wouldn't it be nice if you actually walked out with victory today? And God's like, well, let's just review the past. Is this any bigger of an issue than when you were dead in your trespasses and sin, when the whole army of Pharaoh's army drowned in front of you? Why did I do that? I could have just killed him and you could have just woke up and left so that you could see the enemy defeated. She goes, that guy's never going to be. That guy floating right there, he's never going to be a problem to you again. So the priest then steps up and look at verse 2 now. Here's our first of our approaches. It shall be when you're on the verge of battle that the priest will approach and speak to the people. And he says to them, Hear, O Israel. Perhaps you're familiar with that particular phrase. He'll say it in 5, 1, 6, 3, and 4. 9, 1, obviously here. Jesus will record it, by the way, of course, in Mark 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, Now notice, he could have just gone without that, but God chooses that because it's like, look, you really need to hear this. I'm not talking about intellectually ascribe or nod, but I'm talking about your heart needs to hear this. You're on the verge of battle. And if you're on the verge of battle with your enemies, don't let your heart faint. Don't let it be afraid. Don't tremble. Don't be terrified because... And now it almost sounds like he's getting poetic. Traditional Hebrew poetry kind of says the same thing over and over different ways. We call that parallelism. But can I just say, as I'm kind of tearing it apart in the Hebrew, I realize this is a bit of a process. 
The first thing he says is your heart faint. Now the term, uh, heart by the way is levav, it just means your insides. But the term for faint is the word rekach. Could you say rekach? Try that. Rekach. Come on, there's more than four of you. Just try, just don't worry if you spit on the person in front of you. Rekach. It literally means to soften, to become weak. And you're like, wait a minute, does God want me to have a hard heart? Yes, and a soft one. Soft to him, heart to the battle. And I like this, and the idea of it is, so you start looking at something, what happens is your heart starts to get a little weaker. You know, in other words, you know what happens when somebody is weak-hearted? That's a person that's, if you will, weak in their conviction. So maybe before that you were like, totally, God's going to do this, and I'm convinced, and I'm, I'm solid on this, and you know, here I am, we're, let's move forward, come on, let's go! And then all of a sudden you're like, mm, maybe not, and that's how it starts. You lose your momentum, because your eyes are off of Him. Then we get to that word that's used 188 times, the word yare. Can you say yare? Yare is the word for fear. And it's simple. It just means you start to experience fear. Then we get to our third thing. And the third thing is the word chafetz. Can you say chafetz? Chafetz means, by the way, to start up suddenly, to make haste. And then finally, our last word is the word aratz. Could you say aratz? And aratz means to tremble, to dread, to prevail, over, to be prevailed over, or to break. So follow me. I'm walking with the Lord, and I am on the waves. Now understand, when Peter stepped out of the boat, the storm didn't stop. The issue was not that the storm stopped. The issue was that the storm was underneath him. There's the point. We're talking about walking on water. Walking on still water, that would be really cool. Walking on a storm is even cooler. Because now the waves are going up and down. Is Peter going up and down with the waves? Is he standing on the water and the water's batting him at the same time? We don't know. Scripture doesn't make it clear. But we do know this, that the, that the storm's under him because his eyes are on Christ. But his eyes move off because now he becomes a little bit more, and understand, he becomes a little bit more of an expert in the storm than in the storm calmer. And as his eyes turn away, he's gathering a new set of data and the new data that he's gathering drops him quickly. So what happens is all of a sudden, you're in there, you're like, you know what? That's the way it's going to be. The Lord's got this. I trust him. He's going to lead us forward. We're solid on this. And then something happens. You take your eyes off the Lord because a new set of information comes and you're like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. And you start looking and your heart kind of loses its momentum. It starts to, you know. And at that point, then you start to fear. You, and fear, by the way, can be very selfish. It'd be good, well, wait a minute. What about me? Wait a minute. And it tells us fear involves torment. So I'm like, oh, well, I'm starting to, now I start to analyze the consequences of the storm. I'm going to get wet. I could drown. I could get hurt. I could die. Now, I wasn't thinking that a moment ago, that I wasn't in that before, that it was you. You're cool. And you're, you're keeping me on this. I'm going to keep my eyes on you. But now I'm moving away from that. And I'm, now it becomes about me. That's where fear goes. Fear will always take you back to you. And then things start to speed up. Wait a minute. What do I do? 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 And you know how that works. That's our third thing on that process. And then the fourth thing is you break. Because sooner or later, you can't go any faster without falling apart. It's God's way, by the way, of keeping you from running right into in front of the lorry. And the priest is looking to understand. Because the priest goes first. He wants to make sure the core is solid before we recruit the corpsman. So the core is where are you, where's your focus? 
the, the whole purpose of the priest is to get the focus back on the Father. It's like, you know, so I'm sitting with someone and they're like, you know, I'm really in a rough time right now. Some circumstances are getting rough. My physical, you know, situation's rough or my relationships are kind of rough or whatever. And you want to go, man, that just really stinks. I can't believe God would let you go through this. But all you're doing is rubbing their shoulders while they stare at the problem. But if we're going to be the priest God calls us to, we love them enough to say, hey, can I get your focus back on the Father? Well, then let's pray. I'm not asking for, let's face it, because we can't lean upon our own understanding. So this may not be the kind of thing where I'm like, well, let's just pray that God would teach us how to understand this. But rather, would you, can we get our eyes on God? Would God give us the faith that is necessary to say, I don't have to understand this to know I've already won? Because otherwise I'm going to be staring at this thing, trying to make sense of it. How do you make sense of something like the death of a child? How do you make sense of something like a situation that just goes sour so quickly and you're trying to figure this out or a miscarriage or whatever? And it's like, you know, can I just say, it's not my job to explain But I am sure that God is good. I am sure of it. And I don't have to understand everything to know that. Hey, if you consider the source, it was one of the earliest lessons I learned. If you consider the source, you get in a lot less fights. Someone says something and they say it and you kind of go, wow, that seems kind of weird for them to say that. The reason you're saying that is because their character seems very different from what they said. And what we can do is we could spend all our time staring at the text or the words that were said instead of going, wait a minute, I know that person better than that. Something must be really going on. Do you see the difference? So hear me on this. Here we are, we're looking at this text, and we're not getting very far, obviously. We may have to go beyond. Maybe this is as far as the Lord wants us to go today, but please hear me. The priest is going to get to the core first before we actually get to the rest of the battle. And maybe right now you are dealing with something. Maybe you're kind of looking at the, you know, around you and there's someone you love and it's just not working out right now the way you want it to. You want them to love Jesus and they're not loving Jesus. Maybe right now you kind of look and you, you just know this is the one area of my life if I crack open that door and peek in, it's so ugly and it's so frightening and it speeds me up and I break every time and I don't even want to talk about it. What can I say is the resident priest of your life for the moment, one of them. We need to get our eyes back on on the living God. Now, he's never early. Wouldn't you like him to be early? But he's never late. Please hear me. When John tells us the story of Jesus and Lazarus, Lazarus was still sick when they told him, or so it appears. But we read, because Jesus loved him. And he loved his sisters. He waited. And you go, how could God love me by not stepping in immediately? Because what God was going to do by raising Lazarus from the dead after he stinketh would be infinitely greater and God stepping in while Lazarus was just sick. And I don't know what battle you're facing right now. But I'm here to let you know. It's time to stop counting horses. Stop counting chariots. 
be more an expert in the problem solver. Who, if it really is in his hands, then I don't have to be an expert in the problem. You can go, but you don't understand. And I might say, yeah. But I don't have to. I do know this. He's big enough. You know what tells us to cast our cares before him? It doesn't say, and aren't you thankful, it doesn't say lift up your cares to him, because sometimes our cares get so heavy, we can't even carry them. He's like, well, good, then just throw them down. God invented gravity to help us lay down our problems before him. Aren't you thankful he didn't say, walk up that hill and give them to me? God knows the weight that some of these things are, but he also told us that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And if our shoulders are weighed down, I I think you've got something on them that doesn't belong there. So the priest is looking. Maybe right now you're staring in the face of something and it looks big and it looks scary and it looks like, you know, how in the world am I going to deal with this? The government or the people or the society or the movement or the whatever the things are that you're looking around you and there's such traction and there's such influence and they seem so unmovable. You mean like a seven-story deep wall? That would look pretty immovable. Like a skyscraper of a wall and we're just grasshoppers in the sight of these gigantic people? That kind of immovable? And I've counted them. I know really well how scary this is. And if I'm counting something other than my blessings, chances are what's going to happen is I'm infinitely more acquainted with what I think I don't have than the resources I do. As the priest, I say, look, at wherever that battle is, how far have you gotten? How deep have you gotten into this battle already in regards to your battle plans? Have you gotten to the point where first your heart is starting to soften in your convictions? I mean, you were so sure and you were so confident because you heard the word of God. And now all of a sudden, this thing is standing and in, in, in sort of kind of vaunting over it like a bully. And you're like, man, I'm not sure anymore. Are you not sure because you're listening to something other than him? Have you gone beyond that? to the place where you've let it really focus on you, where fear starts to set in now. And now every breath is infected in a different way. And that fear, by the way, is also the word for dread as well. Yeah, it means the idea of something, seeing something really, really big and daunting. And if you've gotten even worse, you've gotten deeper to the point now where your heart's speeding up and things are just, they're spinning so fast now, like you know, you're on one of those things and you just can't stop it and, and I just can't even figure out how to get my bearings and I'm just... It's just like the whole world's orbit has spun so much faster the moment I look at this thing. Or maybe you've even gone worse. You're broken, man. You're at that place where you're just like, you know, I give up, man. I don't even know what to do. I'm so defeated. I'm just throwing in the towel. I'm just, have someone else fix me. I'm I'm done. I just say, my God really wants to step in today. I see the reason why none of that has to happen is because God is with you. And if God is with you, not just to observe, but to fight for you and to save you, 
And who are you looking at? Do you think this battle's yours? Are you laying it down at his feet where it belongs? You say, Do you remember what he did to your Egypt? Do you remember what it was like? When you were in bondage, I mean bondage, in the hand of the enemy, and you were killing yourself and everyone else around you, do you remember that darkness? Do you remember that emptiness? Do you remember that vanity? Do you remember how hopeless and how futile and how helpless you felt? And God went, BAM! And he cracked through the whole thing and he says, now who's coming out with me? And when that happened, and I walked out with him, and then all of a sudden I start to see these little juniors that look bigger than me, they don't even think it'd be as big as they want. They are nothing compared to the one who took me out of Egypt. When he took down the armies of Egypt, he took down the biggest foe that I knew. And I was helpless. And I was hopeless without him. And he stepped in and he said, we're going. You coming with or what? And when I started stepping out at that point, and I started seeing other things that, by the way, couldn't fight against Egypt, how in the world am I afraid of that now? None of those things compared to Egypt. None of them dared fight with Egypt. Those seven nations that were there in Canaan, none of them dared fight with Egypt. And God took out the biggest boy first for a reason. So that the rest of the battle should be with confidence. And so can I say this as we go to prayer? God's going to say, and when you are victorious. If I lived in that when, would I be quicker to step in and move forward with him? He doesn't say if you're victorious, in which case I'd be a little bit more hesitant to step in. But he's like, when we win this together, this battle you're in, the war we've won, when we win this battle together, Then let's talk about it on the other side. And I go, okay, if I'm going to live in that when, then I'm going to start walking with Jesus. And I'm not going to be afraid when I walk out there. And I'm going to, you know what, I'm going to tell you, and I'm going to say the name of Jesus. And if that bothers you, you know what, I'm sorry for your sake. But I'm going to tell the name of Jesus because that is the only name given among men by which we must be saved. I'm not backing down on that name. So let me ask you, have you received Jesus? Not have you received church. Not have you been confirmed. Not have you gotten a certificate. My God doesn't take group reservations. He calls you by name. And he died on a cross with your name on his heart. And he rose again and said, look it, I want to pay for all of your sins. And I'm going to give you a brand new life. There's the resurrection. Have you accepted that gift? If you haven't, I'm going to give you a chance to. But if you have, I'd like to challenge you today. Look at here's the other good thing. is We'll obviously apparently go next week to the next part. Being a child of God also means you'll never have to fight alone as a person because we are to be an army. And there's the beauty. Will you pray with me? God, I thank you so much for this beautiful text. I thank you, Lord, for the way you lead us forward. I thank you, Lord, that if we're going to get to the heart of the battle, well, then we have to get to the battle in the heart. And if we're going to get to the battle in the heart, it's a battle over trust and our eyes on you, Lord. And I pray that you would just get our focus where it belongs in you. And Lord, please today here, I pray you would just start stripping away all of this dissertation we have developed on our problems. 
where we seem to know you so little because we seem to know it so much. And I pray right now for every person who calls on your name. You promise that everyone who calls on your name will be saved. I believe that. And I pray, Lord, that you get our focus where it belongs. And if I were to go backwards, Lord, I pray right now for every person who feels so broken, so defeated, so overcome. Show them your victory. For every person whose world is speeding up and spinning out of control right now, show them your victory. For every person who's consumed in fear and it seems like every day they wake up and there's a new fear on the catalog, show them your victory. For every person whose heart has slowed from the convictions you've given them, the peace and the security they had in you, show them your victory. And show them, Lord, that the battle is not ours, it's yours. Be that of our own flesh, where we think we should be first. Be that of the world where we want to fit in, that tells us to trust ourselves versus you, to take matters into our own hands. Be that over the spiritual battle, where we cannot win it with carnal weapons, but with you, Jesus. We have the victory. And we praise you as you lead us in triumph. So give us that fresh perspective, that fresh hope, and lead us forward in the battle. Because with every step we take in the battle that you lead us in is more ground to be gained. And we pray for the soul of our city that you would, Lord, deliver this city into your arms where it properly belongs and every soul may they cry out to you before it's too late and within the sound of this voice now what if that's you if you're not sure if you've ever accepted the gift of jesus or maybe you're sure you haven't i want to give you the opportunity today to say yes to him and it's simple the bible says if we're willing to confess with our mouth the lord jesus and believe in our heart that god raised him from the dead will be saved and I want to give you the privilege of doing that. So I'm going to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen. At the end of it, if you agree, I ask you to give a confident and resounding amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. That's my prayer now. I'm making claim to that. And here it is. God in heaven, I'm a sinner. I confess. Just like every other human being, I'm a sinner. And you punish all sin because you're a righteous judge. But because you love me, you sent your only begotten Son, Jesus the Christ, who died on the cross on my behalf so that all my sin and the sin of all mankind could be properly punished without you having to punish the sinner. And as he died on the cross, my price was paid in full. And just like Scripture promised that he died in such a way, and just like Scripture promised he was buried and he rose again on the third day, and offers me brand new life now as my risen Savior and Lord. But you give me that choice. And in that choice, I say yes. If you want to pay for all of my guilt, be my guest. And I say yes, Jesus, to you as my Savior. And as you've risen from the dead and conquered that death and live forevermore, 
I call you Lord, Jesus, the Lord of my life, the architect of my reinvention, my master, my savior, my love and my life, my light and my leader. So lead me now in victory as I hand my life over to you. Father, I am yours in Jesus' name. And if you agree, I ask you to give a confident, resounding, Amen. Lord, I pray for every person who's prayed that prayer today, that you would cement in their heart, Lord, that conviction and lead them forward in you. I pray for every one of us, Lord, for whatever battles we are aware of or have yet to encounter even this week, that we will never take our focus off of you. And so I commit this to you, Lord. May we walk in your victory. In Jesus' name. Amen.